From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. All eyes are on Washington, D.C. this week as Congress counts the Electoral College votes. It's divided Republicans nationwide and in Colorado. Yeah, I think it's important when you hold yourself out as the party that believes in the rule of law that you follow the rule of law. There is no higher rule of law in this country than the Constitution. I cannot in good conscience accept results that I see the Constitution was not upheld. Our Washington reporter, Caitlin Kim, lets us in on what to expect. Then, from leeches to the discovery of germs, how the history of medicine and surgery has shaped advancements, including the rapid development of the COVID-19 vaccines. Plus, demand for early childhood education is increasing, but there's already a shortage of caregivers. So how will Colorado confront this challenge? Thank you to everyone who gives to support the work Colorado Public Radio does every day. Thanks to those who support by donating a vehicle, by underwriting, or by making CPR part of their estate plans. And thanks to those who volunteer, who share feedback, and who make CPR an important part of their every day. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio community. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. With this new year also comes a new Congress. The Colorado delegation welcomed two new members to its ranks this week, Democratic Senator John Hickenlooper and Republican Representative Lauren Boebert. And the new Congress looks to have a raucous start. On Wednesday, several members have said they will object to the Electoral College vote count. Joining us now to walk us through what to expect is CPR's Washington reporter, Caitlin Kim. Welcome, Caitlin. Hi, Avery. Two members of the Colorado delegation said they support the objection. Colorado Springs area representative Doug Lamborn said Monday that he will object to the count from six states that Joe Biden won. He joins newly elected representative Lauren Boebert, who represents the Western Slope and Pueblo. What's their logic? Right. So they're arguing that voters should know definitively that the elections were not fraudulent. They see it as upholding the Constitution and rule of law. Here's Lauren Boebert. I believe that the Electoral College is our lane and that it is constitutional to accept or reject the electoral uh, results from the states. And I cannot in good conscience accept results that I see the Constitution was not upheld. You know, there have been all these allegations, but there is no evidence to support any of that of widespread voter fraud. In fact, numerous judges, secretaries of state, the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Justice, all found no evidence of fraud to the level that would change the election results. Now, Boebert has been a strong supporter of President Trump, and Trump and his campaign have been working very hard to try and overturn the election results. Now, Doug Lamborn, I think, is trying to walk a finer line. When I spoke with him about it, it wasn't necessarily about overturning the results, but having the debate about ensuring that, you know, no fraud was there was no fraud in this election. He said, quote, whether it rises to the level of widespread fraud, I'd like to get to the bottom of. And I don't have an answer for that. Now, Republican Representative Ken Buck has taken a different position. He objects to the objections. Explain what's going on here. Right. Now, Ken Buck joined six other GOP House members basically saying the Constitution is clear. Congress's job is to count the votes from the states, which all 50 states have certified. And this is what he told me. 
Yeah, I think it's important when you hold yourself out as the party that believes in the rule of law that you follow the rule of law. And the con there is no higher rule of law in this country than the Constitution. And the Constitution is plain on what our duty is on January 6th. We are, uh, the vice president is to open the envelope and we are to count. So what you're seeing is this split within the Republican Party about how to handle the vote count. And Buck is in the camp of we shouldn't be challenging it. He's not saying there's no fraud. The statement that they put out uh, says, you know, it does raise questions uh, for him and the others. But it, he says it's not Congress's role to reject state certified counts. In fact, he called it unconstitutional to insert Congress into the center of the presidential election process and would amount to basically stealing power from the people and the states. You know, I asked Buck if he thought that the statement that this small group of Republicans put out would change some of the minds within his party. And he thinks basically some Republicans are looking for a landing place they're comfortable with intellectually and politically. And he thinks this could be that space for some of them. What, if anything, might the split between the Colorado Republicans mean? Could it influence their ability to work together on legislation in the coming months? No, I don't think it's going to affect how they work together um, as Republicans or even within the larger delegation. I think it's it is an interesting split, though, because, you know, this isn't a split between Trump supporting Republicans and sort of the never Trumper Republicans. All three Colorado GOP members are Trump supporters, but they have different interpretation on what Congress's role is on Wednesday. And I don't think that's surprising. You know, Buck has always been a strong supporter of federalism and states' rights. So, you know, he's taking that stance, you know, that very principled stance. And I asked Bobert about the split and, she, you know, because she and Ken Buck are pretty much politically aligned. And she said, you know, they're not going to agree on everything all the time. And, you know, this just happens to be one of those times. What are Colorado Democrats saying about this? Well, not surprisingly, none of them are supportive of this. Democratic Representative Jason Crow said voters have spoken and they chose Biden. And it's time to respect the will of the voters. And anything else is undemocratic. Uh, and uh, it's just not going to happen on Wednesday. And I'll add that, you know, Democratic Senator Michael Bennett was surprised that Colorado members were taking part in this objection. But he, he thinks Biden will prevail, but not before it, quote, uh, sends a terrible message to the American people. You know, Bennett was somewhat optimistic, though. He thinks Biden will work hard to try and unify the country after this. I'll also note that Representative Joe Neguse has been involved in the House Democrats' strategy on how to address the challenge in that chamber. You know, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi gave him and a few others a shout out in her Dear Colleague letter earlier this week, saying she's grateful for their patriotic and strategic guidance. So I think there's a chance we might be hearing from him on Wednesday. If I remember correctly, Democratic Representative Ed Perlmutter tried to mount a challenge to the electoral count in 2017. Did he have anything to say about this effort? Yeah, I actually just spoke to him this morning. He did try to file an objection in the 2017 count because of his concerns about Russian interference in the election, but no senator supported him, so he didn't file in the end. You know, he thinks this is a futile effort. You know, the, the votes have been counted and recounted, litigated and relitigated, and Biden still comes out on top. But he does admit that the objectors are within their rights. But And so these guys have taken it to a level where individual Americans have been threatened uh, because they have uh, been good citizens and have stood up for the process. You know, he's talking about Republican and Democratic poll workers, election officials, even politicians. You know, Perlmutter did give credit where he says credit is due. And he said he was impressed uh, by Ken Buck and former Republican Secretary of State Wayne Williams because they have stood up for the security um, of the Colorado election system. 
What is the outcome of all this likely to be? You know, it's going to be a long day on Wednesday, probably stretching into Thursday. And at the end of it, Joe Biden will still be the president-elect. No one expects this political theater to lead to votes from states being rejected. Again, all 50 states have certified their results. The Electoral College met and affirmed the win. Joe Biden received 306 Electoral College votes to Trump's 232. And as a reminder, both chambers, the Senate and the House, would have to vote to sustain the objection by a simple majority. Democrats control the House. But honestly, enough Republicans in both chambers have already said they won't support the objection. But if we want to take the sort of pigs are flying, unicorns are running around the Capitol and Trump supporters <laughs> managed to reject certified election results of six states, I think the question then becomes, how do those members or how do the members of Congress explain overruling the will of the people in those states that had free and fair elections by all counts? You know, it takes us down a dangerous road, I think. You know, and with all of this aside, the session is still starting. What is the start of session like? Colorado had two new members sworn in. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's 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 a very busy start to session. They started on a Sunday. I got to speak with both uh, Senator John Hickenlooper and Representative Lauren Boebert. Both of them expressed their gratitude to the voters back in Colorado for giving them this honor. And both are really excited to get to work. The Senate swearing in was actually quite congenial. Lots of elbow bumps and fist bumps and new senators were sworn in in pairs. Hickenlooper was walked down the chamber aisle by fellow Coloradan Michael Bennett per tradition. And they also reenacted it down the hall. And you could hear, you know, the small talk. Um, between the vice president and Senator Hagen-Luper. And it's actually like a nice reminder that when you put politics aside, people generally get along and are really, really nice to one another. You know, they spoke about their families and even Pence's recent vacation to Colorado. The House admittedly was a bit more chaotic. You know, there were more members. They were trying to do social distancing, lots of procedures beforehand. Lauren Boebert was in this first group early in the evening that got um, sworn in. It was this really chaotic crush. And I think she was a little wistful that this 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 was a group swearing in ceremony, but that's traditionally what it is, except it's all 435, not groups of 70. Um, but, you know, she, you know, she was still happy to, to do it and, and to be there. And Representative Boebert, she's made some headlines for an issue she's known for in Colorado, guns. Remind us the news there and reflect on that a little bit. Yeah. So she's put out this little social media video on Sunday, the first day of Congress, where it basically looked like she had, you know, she carries a Glock in Colorado that she had, you know, she had her Glock, you know, she was wearing it concealed, walking around the Capitol, walking around D.C. And that made news because D.C. has very strict uh, gun control laws. And someone asked the D.C. chief of police about it, um, Robert Conti, and he said he was going to you know, reach out to Bobert's office to make sure she understood the rules for carrying guns. I got to talk with her about it. And she said she she always carries a gun lawfully. Um, and later on, her office pretty much said that she wasn't, you know, she wasn't walking around with a, a concealed weapon around D.C. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Avery. Caitlin Kim is CPR's Washington reporter. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
The world of medicine has come a long way from the early days of humors and bleedings. Even more noteworthy is just how quickly doctors are making discoveries. The book The Invention of Surgery, A History of Modern Medicine, from the Renaissance to the Implant Revolution, details the journey of medicine, from leeches to antibiotics to open-heart surgery. This history can also help explain the speed of medical advancement, including how a COVID-19 vaccine was developed in less than a year. Author Dr. David Schneider is an orthopedic surgeon based in Boulder. Dr. Schneider, welcome. Good morning. How are you doing? Doing well, thanks. Your book, it starts with a story that inspired you to write this history. Tell us that story. Well, I've been treating this family for some time, and uh, I got a call from Central America. And the call was that uh, the patient, the, the wife of the patient I had treated, was very seriously injured had a gruesome injury and she was trapped in this hospital and needed to make her way back to the United States. So, uh, and of course they changed the identities and even the sex of the patient. But uh, long story short, she made her way back to the States via an air ambulance. And once they picked her up in in a regular ambulance back to our hospital, I was rehearsing in my mind how I would talk to the family and tell them, She's really at grave risk of losing her leg. We're going to try and do everything we can. There might be some surprises along the way. So I rehearsed this talk in my mind. And once I got into the preoperative holding area, before I could even get it out, she looked at me and she said, I want a perfect ankle and I don't want to see any scars. I was kind of shocked because I was trying to prepare them that, you know, you really could lose your leg. And through a long series of events and multiple operations, she actually ended up having really ideal, almost perfect function of the ankle and her scars were invisible. And as the months went by and I kept trying to review and just just to recount the fact that it really was a miraculous type of recovery, man, I felt like I couldn't break through. And they just said, well, of course, I mean, isn't the way it always works? And I said, well, man, you know, it, just 75 years ago, before the invention of antibiotics, you would have almost certainly lost your leg. And no matter what I tried to convey, they just wouldn't kind of grasp the fact that we're living through this modern miracle. And in frustration, I walked out of the clinic room one day and I told one of my assistants, I feel like I should write a book and explain to people how dramatically far we've come over the last 75 years. And she looked at me and she said, you should write a book. And I said, I really should write a book. And And she said, no, Dave, Dr. Schneider, you really should write a book. And I thought, (laughs) I will. And uh, hence the the journey, the adventure started. This is sort of a history just to inspire gratefulness for what we do have. (laughs) Well, just, yeah, to to become aware. Yeah. Yeah. So your history, it begins with Hippocrates and Galen. They're often called the fathers of medicine. But you write that these two contributed nothing useful to the actual healing of people. Why yeah. then are they still considered the fathers of medicine? Well, I guess they, they re, both Hippocrates and Galen, Greek and Roman respectively, did inspire an inclination to think more deeply about how the body works. And of course, they were limited by all the diagnostic tools. Of course, they were almost 2,000 years away from a, a good working microscope. But at least they tried, and they had an emphasis on doing the right thing and being honest with your patients and, and the highest duty to care for your patients. 
But really, it is, uh, as I write in the book, it's a dubious paternity because they were wrong in so many ways. <laughs> so it's not that they had the science right so much, but they did inspire a lot of the ways that we view medicine or that doctors can practice it. That's right. There are a number of scientists who weren't physicians who you argue played a role in the history of medicine. People like Gutenberg, Newton, Francis Bacon. Tell us about their contributions. Yeah. Well, it really starts with Francis Bacon. 400 years ago, almost exactly in 1620, Francis Bacon was really the guy more than anyone else that is the father of empirical science. And Bacon had this incredible inclination. He lived in and around London. He really realized, you know what, if, if we get a bunch of really smart thinkers together in a room and do an important process, empirical science, that is to say to form a hypothesis do some investigative work, come up with some data, analyze it, and form a new hypothesis. And if we keep doing this, particularly sharing the information in what he called Solomon's house, if we come together and do that, we'll actually figure out truly how the world works. And of course, it was, it was Francis Bacon who then inspired the formation, just less than 50 years later, of the Royal Society, the world's really first genius society. And these men, of course, it was men as scientists uh, 400 years ago, 350 years ago, who then said, we're going to share our information and we're going to have the world's first peer-reviewed journal, which is still in function today, the Philosophical Transactions. This peer-reviewed sharing of information, the collection of scientific data, is what just forced the world to leapfrog ahead. And it was then the early astronomers, guys like Galileo, by being able to peer and think about the way the heavens worked, really started the ball forward in, in really trying to ascertain, does our mathematical world, is it predictable? And of course, it is. And what Bacon was pioneering, we know now is the scientific method, um, which of yes. course has been important for all of our science. Uh, there were several yeah. moments that propelled medicine forward, but a major one was the discovery of pathology by Giovanni Battista Morgagne. Why was yeah. this important? Morgagne doesn't get the credit he deserves. He had this incredible research project throughout the 1700s to realize, you know, doctors, there was never a good, no matter how smart a doctor was in the 1700s, they weren't doing anyone any good. You were really better off letting nature take its own course. So Margagne began this process in his 20s as a young doctor in northern Italy. And he realized, I'm going to take everyone's hospital course or their health course, and we're going to analyze how they do. And if they die, I will do an autopsy. I'll cut them open and try and investigate how they died. And so he's the guy that really put together, let's see, lower abdominal pain, for a few days before you die, he found the swollen appendix. And someone that had this crushing chest pain and then collapsed, it was Morgagne who opened up a man's heart, looked at the coronary vessels and saw that it was clogged and realized, I think these coronary blood vessels are what caused this man to die. And he was the first person to realize what a heart attack was. And it goes on and on. And Morgagne amazingly collected all this data over 60 years. He waited until he was in his 80s to publish his book. It's caused this, it, in English, we would say the seats and causes of disease. He's the one that, that really shone the light upon mankind, humankind, 
that symptoms are nothing more than the groanings of suffering organs. And in connecting the dots and realizing if you have abdominal pain, it's not that the planets are off or that there's evil spirits in the room. It's that something is going on right then and there. And that's why he is the father of pathology, even focusing our minds even more clearly on heart, lung, kidneys, muscles, ligaments, brain, that this is where the pathology lies. This is why we get sick. This is why we die. And it seems so commonplace and obvious to us now, but the discovery of germs in the 1800s was also a game changer. How did this change the way that doctors thought about diseases? It really is a miraculous set of findings by a very small group of thinkers, uh, mostly German and later some of the Brits, to realize something is really going on. And, and the, the first person, I, I left out Louis Pasteur, the, the Frenchman, Pasteur was the one who was called to a winemaker uh, in northeastern France because his, his wine kept spoiling. And so he hired Pasteur, who was not a physician, he was a chemist. Pasteur looked at the spoilage and realized, you know what, I, I, it's not that there are toxins in the wine that are making it go bad. Something, and this is a really important insight on his part, something is amplifying. There's something logarithmic going on that can't be explained just by a poison. Something is actually alive. And of course, it was this yeast that was causing the spoilage. Um, he realized that this living organism was so small, we couldn't see it. The microscope was just getting good enough there in the 1850s, 1860s, because of a man named Joseph Jackson Lister, who's the father of Joseph Lister, the microscope enabled them to see the bacteria and the yeast. And this incredible aha moment came about where everyone went from not believing in germs in the early 1820s, 1830s. And by the 1880s, every smart person in the world believed in germs, bacteria. Of course, you couldn't see viruses. Scientists couldn't see viruses for almost another 100 years. They're so incredibly small, but they realized they had to be there. And once you believe in germs, now you can actually start doing things ridiculously simple, like washing your hands, <laughs> bathing, cleansing the skin before surgery. I mean, it's hard to believe, though, because Joseph Lister, who you mentioned, he was one of the first people to champion hand washing, and he faced ridicule. So how did we come from that discovery oh. to germs to hand washing to antibiotics? Well, here on NPR, listeners will have uh, heard a couple different times the amazing story of Semmelweis. Semmelweis was the Hungarian who practiced in Vienna, Austria. He tried connecting the dots that in the childbirth unit there at the University of Vienna, that women did better if they were cared for by people who actually washed their hands. He ended up losing his life. They thought he was crazy. He may have had syphilis, but Semmelweis was the first person to really emphatically insist that germs were real. But the problem with Semmelweis, because he was kind of going mad and because he was perhaps too emotional and not scientific enough to explain to his fellow thinkers, physicians and scientists, that he was right. Joseph Lister accomplished that because he was able, through a careful program of scientific research, able to prove that the germ theory was right and that his patients did better when he cleansed their skin, he cleansed their wounds, he washed his hands. And as uh, Charles Darwin's son said, in science, the credit usually doesn't go to the person who thinks of it first. The credit goes to the person 
who convinces the world of his idea. Hmm. Something interesting you note in this book, and you point to it over and over again, is that advancements in surgery came from tinkerers, oddballs, lonely geniuses, inspiring mentors, and stubborn misfits. Why is that? Well, nothing in this world is accomplished without enthusiasm, Avery. And everyone who's ever made a difference, every man or woman that pushed the ball forward, tended to be an absolutely obsessive personality. And they tended to think through their hands. Almost everyone who's done something were, were the kind of tinker who had to make a tool, who wanted to think it out in their minds with their hands. And uh, it's just it's this commonality, as well as just almost being this nerd uh, isolated by themselves. And it's part of the reason that makes it difficult to convince your fellow person that you're really onto something if you're away in your dark, damp <laughs> research area trying to make it all happen. And then you have to come out of the dark, damp research area and convince people that what you found was right. Throughout throughout your book, you argue the progress of medicine looks less like a straight line and more like parabolic growth. There seems to be less time in between discoveries as we go forward. How do you account for that acceleration? Well, the first part of it, of course, is sharing. And of course, that starts with Gutenberg and the ability to share with your fellow person and, and like the Royal Society, like we spoke about. The, the rapidity with which the progress is made now is stunning. And it's almost like this doubling rule that we see with microchips. The faster the advancements come, the faster the next uh, breakthrough occurs. And, and I think we're just going to continue to see this. And of course, the most recent vaccination progress is just an incredible example of how the speed of science just continues to accelerate. So years of innovation, it has built to what you pointed to, this very recent scientific discovery, the development of the COVID-19 vaccine. But that hadn't happened yet when you wrote the book, of course. Right. Do you think that the history of medicine helps to explain why we're able to develop a vaccine so quickly? I think it does. Uh, Of course, the history of medicine, the advancement of surgery, is, is really all about science. It's this discovery. You have to understand first how things are working. Then you have to think about how things go wrong. And then you have to really try and innovate a clever way of getting around it. And it always comes down to the simple mathematical formula in my mind that innovation, this this revolution, I should say, revolutions happen through the combination of some crisis or catastrophe combined with some scientific invention. So catastrophe, plus an innovation equals a revolution. And of course, that's what's happened. Vaccines have been around for, you know, since the time of Jenner, but it really wasn't until the last 15 years that Carrico and Wiseman had this incredible idea that this workaround to try and make an mRNA vaccine work better. And, And as is typical, Catlin Carrico at Penn, together with her colleague Wiseman, had this idea that was very much unheralded at first. She was laughed out of the university. Her Penn advisor told her she really wasn't cut out for academia. But her idea, of course, is what's changing the world, which is why there can be no doubt that the two of them will win the Nobel Prize for chemistry this upcoming year. But it's this ability to think out of the box, to be different, to break away from the crowd, 
That's where innovation happens. Back in March, you actually predicted that the vaccine would be developed within a year, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, it was. We, I was on WABC in New York, and I followed immediately after the former FDA commissioner. And he was warning listeners in New York, it's going to be a couple years, probably three years. It's just not going to happen. And I was next, and I said, I don't know anything. And he's the FDA commissioner, for goodness sakes. I'm. He's a virologist and a world expert in vaccines. But I do understand the way revolutions work. I think he's wrong. It was kind of fun to go back on the WABC last week and say, I just got my vaccination shot. Um, the world is amazing. And we are all glad that it is here sooner than two years. Yeah. Um, you actually noted this earlier, that leaps in medicine, they often occur during war times or times of strife. And I feel like yeah. that's actually not unlike many forms of technology. But tell us a little bit more about why you think that is. Part of it is uh, our minds are not really attuned to look at big breakthroughs or to have a huge insight unless we have the vast number, just just the numbers to be able to form a conclusion. War brings that about oftentimes. Um, all, almost all the great advances in surgery happen because of wartime findings and discoveries because you have huge numbers of people who are injured and you can think through well, actually, we can't fix fractures in the field when it's dirty because everyone's dying. What if we just cleanse their wounds, temporize them, and then fix them later? And of course, the advent of antibiotics, which was only seven, 80 years ago, Avery. 80 years ago was the first clinical dose of penicillin. And uh, it's just a matter of scale that allows us to actually envision what is working and what's not. Wow. You end your book with a look forward to our future, and you call it Homo Electris. In about the minute we have left, what is Homo Electris? Well, it's the, it's the term I coined to think about man and machine kind of becoming one. And it's a little frightening for some thinkers, but uh, there can be no doubt. You know, it, it, anyone listening right now, you almost can't name a person that doesn't have some type of implant in their body. And if you have the implant in your body that's electrical, like a pacemaker or deep brain stimulation, we're getting to the point where I think all of us are going to end up having something in our body, and it's probably going to be electrical more and more. And companies like Neuralace and other kinds of companies, they're going to help us think and process better. seems to me there is no doubt that probably 50, if not 100 years from now, just about every person in the world is going to have some type of device, probably even in our brain. Forget about an iPhone in your hand. It's going to be like having an iPhone in your brain. <laughs> and that starts to pose a sort of ship of Theseus problem, but with our own brains. But I suppose that's a question for the moral philosophers. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Schneider. Thank you, Avery. Dr. David Schneider is the author of The Invention of Surgery, A History of Modern Medicine from the Renaissance to the Implant Revolution. When we come back, too many kids, not enough caregivers. What can be done to provide early childhood education in Colorado? This is CPR News. There's a new CPR web store. Do you trust the facts? Of course you do. You listen to CPR News. Why not wear that loud and proud with the CPR News t-shirt? One of the coolest things in the online CPR shop is CPR Classical's wine tumbler celebrating Beethoven. Or how about the new Indy 1023 beanie, guaranteed to keep your head warm all winter long? 
Show your love for public radio. Visit shop.cpr.org or click CPR Shop from our website menu. Colorado has a problem. Too many children with not enough people to take care of them while their parents work. Demand for early childhood education is expected to increase 20 percent in the next 10 years. But already, turnover is extremely high. Today, we kick off a weekly series about how Colorado is confronting the challenge. Here's CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine. Delia Cordova is responsible for the most significant years in a human being's life, those first three years when 90 percent of the brain develops. She's an early childhood educator, but even though she makes more than the average wage for teachers in her field, which is $28,000 a year. Up until two years ago, I had food stamps, I had Medicaid for myself and my kids. I had, um, sorry, um, I was living on housing for 14 years. That's subsidized housing. Until recently, and after a long day of educating three- and four-year-olds, Cordova cleaned office buildings until midnight to support her own three children. Many ECE workers have a second job, and a third of them get public assistance. Cordova's job doesn't come with benefits. Here's Rebecca Cantor, dean of the University of Colorado Denver's School of Education and Human Development. We have a crisis-level shortage of teachers at any level of preparation in the field right now. Colorado's child care workers, on average, earn less than half the salary of kindergarten teachers. Yet one seminal study says teaching our youngest children is just as complex as teaching older children. It recommends early educators have a bachelor's degree and get comparable pay. But seven-year teaching veteran Najla Kimball says many can't afford it. A lot of times they want us as preschool teachers to have these extra accreditations, these classes. That's a motivation that they say will get us paid more. But these classes are often $80, $90, $200 for these courses that are on Saturday evenings. And we're already scraping by to begin with. The demand for workers is so high, people are recruited who have the bare minimum of educational requirements. That fuels turnover when child care workers are faced with caring for a rising number of children who have challenging behaviors. Veteran teacher Delia Cordova says she didn't have the proper training to help out one little boy. I was ready to quit. I'd come home crying after work. So what is Colorado doing to recruit and retain more early educators? The state does have a comprehensive workforce plan with many goals, like innovating ways to make training affordable and increasing the diversity of the workforce. CU Denver's Diana Schack. It's expanding scholarship programs. It's expanding loan forgiveness programs. It's also expanding and being creative with our higher education delivery system. Like maybe instead of attending a college class in a lecture hall, training could be done on site at a child care center with a coach giving feedback. Or, says the state's Jennifer O'Brien, leaders could figure out ways to convert people's experience or individual training they've gotten into college credit. And so for our folks where higher education seems like a big, huge step, this makes it that first step a little smaller for people. But O'Brien, like every other person interviewed for this series, says Colorado won't see real change unless there are significant efforts to boost wages. ECE teacher Catherine Schmidt says right now, more education doesn't mean significantly higher wages. I have been in the field for 10 years. I have my bachelor's degree. I have a director license. 
I have a teacher license. I've taken I don't know how many trainings and I make $17.33. Early milestone Colorado's Meg Franco says it will take greater public investment to change the system. We as a society continue to expect that the industry is going to act as though it's purely a private good when really it's it's not and it can't thrive as though it is. Governor Jared Polis has proposed spending $4 million to increase salaries and educational opportunities opportunities for some of the state's early childhood teachers and assistants. It's the first time the state has tried to dedicate funds to inch up child care worker salaries toward the average salary of K-12 teachers who make double the money. We know in the data shows those early childhood years, the professional in the room, the adult in the room is every bit as important, if not more, to the successful development and achievement of the child as the teachers in the K-12 system. The pandemic has laid bare this fact. The economy relies on parents having access to reliable child care. That won't happen unless more people enter the field. In the weeks ahead, we'll look at some innovative pilot programs trying to recruit and keep child care professionals. Jenny Brendine, CPR News. Jenny joins us now to talk about her new series exploring early childhood education in Colorado. It's called The Workforce Behind the Workforce. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Avery. Jenny, tell us a bit about why you chose this topic for a series. Yeah, this series is all about uh, all the people, mostly women, who care for and educate young children so the rest of the population can work. It's about how the state plans to confront the critical worker shortage and recruit more people into the field. And this series is part of a higher education fellowship that I've spent some time on. It was made possible by the Institute for Citizens and Scholars. That organization is in part focused on career and technical education. So why did you choose early childhood education specifically? This is arguably one of the most important sectors of our economy, but it is in absolute crisis and it's almost completely ignored by the media. You say it is one of the most important sectors of our economy. Why is it ignored? Well, there are some theories. We don't tend to pay much attention to small children. They don't have any political power. And look who's educating these children. I spoke with Sue Russell, the former executive director of the Teach Early Childhood National Center. She has 50 years of early childhood experience. You have to remember that childcare was always free, you know, because women stayed home and they did it. And if they didn't stay home, they had another woman doing it, often a woman of color. So you, you just have to kind of get this reality of, yeah, it was women's work. So it comes with that big bias, and then it comes with the women of color bias. So the field is 98 percent women and disproportionately women of color, a group that has historically not had much political or economic power and is chronically underpaid in many jobs. Before we get to the education part, let's spend a bit of time on pay. A study says early childhood educators are often paid less than dog walkers, janitors, even baristas. The researchers say that's the main reason for the shortage. So a basic question, why do parents spend so much money on child care, yet early childhood educators earn so little? Yeah, there is a flaw in the system. So a family could pay more than ten to $15,000 a year for child care. But it actually costs far more to educate each child. And that's because money also has to go to rent, utilities, maintenance, classroom materials, food and administration. The job is labor intensive and it requires low adult to child ratios. The remaining money often doesn't allow for living wages for teachers. Meg Franco with Early Milestones Colorado told me that's a big problem. 
as a society, we're willing to boost up other industries, whether it be agriculture or currently the airline industry or steel. Um, But we have this feeling that parents should be bearing the full cost of childcare. We don't even expect that necessarily for college. And yet, Infant toddler care can cost more than a year of at a four-year university. So advocates are arguing for public investment similar to what we do for K through 12 education. Yes, exactly. And what I should add, many say that move would actually save society money. Nobel laureate economist James Heckman shows that every dollar spent on high-quality preschool for a disadvantaged child delivers a 13% annual return on investment. That's better than the stock market most years for most people. Studies show those children who've had high-quality care need fewer social services and get better jobs. Jenny, you also spoke with those who own their own child care centers. What did they say about low pay? They say about the same thing as the educators. Owners and staff are on the same side on this issue. Ashley Henshaw with Stepping Stones Early Learning Center in Littleton says she's constantly looking for ways to boost salaries without gouging parents. She echoes something brought up by many providers. Early childhood centers don't get a property tax break, and she pays $40,000 a year in property tax. It kills me that I have to pay that much on property tax. And I would love to be able to put that money into the staff and give them all raises. So pay is definitely a big reason Colorado has a critical shortage. How is it affecting providers' ability to recruit workers? One Colorado study shows it takes providers two and a half months to find a replacement after someone leaves. Here's Katie McDonald of the Meadows Early Learning Center. There's also still the stigma that we're babysitters. We get a lot of resumes from bartenders, hostesses, people who have worked in assisted living facilities, and they seem to think that they're just going to come and hang out with kids all day, and then they become very, very intimidated when they realize we actually have a full curriculum with developmental milestones, and we plunge our own toilet. A full curriculum with developmental milestones. Jenny, that brings us into the education part of it. As your story pointed out, it's recommended that early childhood educators have a bachelor's degree in early childhood education. Is that happening? No, uh, some do have that, but most are hired with the bare minimum, which to teach alone in a class with children, that's two college classes and two years experience. And you reported that for someone in an entry-level position, say a teacher's aide, there are significant barriers to getting more training. What's Colorado doing to help? Yeah, a few years ago, the state developed a plan to build the early childhood workforce, and it had some really ambitious goals. Some have been stymied because of Colorado's fiscal crisis, but with some state and philanthropic funding, nonprofits began asking, how can we tackle these barriers to get more people into the field? CPR News will be airing stories on those ideas in the coming weeks. Can you give us a taste? Yeah. So one pilot program that targets refugee and immigrant women has a waiting list of women wanting to become certified to be early childhood educators. They take an intensive course in one of four languages like Swahili or Arabic. What the organizers found about this group is, one, they have a huge appetite for learning how to better take care of and educate children. And two, they want to help support their family. Here's Deborah Young with the Pomoja Early Childhood Education Program. It really aligns with cultural values of roles, right? The roles of a woman and the roles 
girls and the man. So we're not crossing a lot of those barriers and limits in early childhood, right? Because culturally, it is the woman's role to have more in the child rearing areas. Another promising pipeline is starting in high school, letting kids take college level early childhood courses that set them on the path into the field. I visited a program in the St. Vrain Valley School District. High school senior Grace Wardle will graduate in May already with 24 credits towards a degree. And one thing she knows, she'll be working with little kids one day. It's so much fun. Like, it's challenging at times, but as you grow with these kids and learn how to teach them and help them and support them in their learning, it's like they're your sibling or like your kid. And the hope is that some of these students will come back and work in the St. Vrain District's early childhood programs. Again, we're talking with Jenny Brundine, CPR News education reporter, about her new series on the problems with the state's early childhood education system. Jenny, we talked about the low pay and the fact that many educators just stop working to go to school for more training. Are there any programs that attack that barrier? Yeah, there's an interesting model at Red Rocks Community College, and it's the apprenticeship. It lets the students earn while they learn, and they get raises throughout the program. Apprentice Vivian Darby says the best part was she got on-the-job coaching and feedback from a senior member of the staff. Because she didn't sugarcoat things. So if I really needed direction of, uh, well, that didn't go well for me, how could I handle that? She was, you know, great, great, great. It's hoped that this kind of support will decrease turnover. One in four ECE workers in Colorado changed jobs in 2019. And this assists the educators that can't just stop working for that training. Jenny, there are many women taking care of children in their homes. I understand you explored a program helping these women in Roaring Fork Valley, home of ski towns like Aspen and Snowmass. Informal caregivers make up the majority of child care providers in this state. Some are licensed by the state, but there's a huge segment who, while the care they give is legal, they're not licensed. So think of all the service workers who make beds, clean hot tubs, and cook food for tourists in the resort towns. They have children who need care. One nonprofit has developed a program for these caregivers who educate those children. Many are undocumented, and before this program, they were completely underground without support. The women have an insatiable desire to become more educated about their profession, from safety protocols to, you know, what activities stimulate a child's brain. Here's Lupita. So Lupita told me she loves learning. She sometimes works 5, 8, from 5 a.m. to 7 p.m., but is so motivated she takes classes on Saturdays. The nonprofit has a program in high schools as well. Now, each of the pilot programs I've talked about has challenges, but organizers say there are solutions if the state has the will to solve them through you know, policy changes and dedicated funds. Jenny, you've spent weeks researching this issue. What stood out to you? Were there any surprises? Wow. I think just that these women, I, I, I was kind of blown away by their dedication and how many hours they work. So on, on the one hand, just the incredible challenges in this job and how underpaid they are. I don't think I fully comprehended that until I talked to many of them. But then as far as the solutions, really how dedicated they are, how much they want more it education, but they just can't afford to do it. Jenny, we are looking forward to your series. Thank you so much, Avery. 
CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine's series The Workforce Behind the Workforce explores early childhood education in Colorado. It will air weekly on CPR News and on Colorado Matters. Finally today, Dr. Ethan Lazarus runs a nutrition center, is a delegate in the American Medical Association, and is president-elect for the Obesity Medicine Association. He's also a pianist and a cellist with the Littleton Symphony Orchestra. During the pandemic, he brushed up on music theory, studied composition, and learned digital audio production. This work led Dr. Lazarus to release a new album last month, which he also produced. Right now, let's listen to the title track of the album, Remembering Tomorrow. Dr. Lazarus says it's about optimism that we will prevail over COVID-19, even when the end still seems far away. This is a song of hope. Remembering Tomorrow, the title track from the new album by Dr. Ethan Lazarus of Littleton. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thank you for joining us. And thank you to the team that helps bring this show to air. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner, Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. Paolo Schalza. And I'm Avery Lill. You can get Colorado Matters anytime on demand. Just ask your smart speaker to play podcast Colorado Matters. This is CPR News.